my name is Jack. If we haven't met, or even if we have, my name is still Jack. Um, I am the other elder, as I'm referred to often here at Remedy. Uh, glad to be with you this morning. Um, love this time of year. Love uh, getting ready for Christmas. Uh, just the just the whole atmosphere. And uh, combine that with this series, it's um, just a lot of fun for me. I, uh, one of the things that God's really done in my life, done in my, in my heart over the past probably 10 years or so, is deepen my appreciation for uh, the first part of Scripture, what we commonly refer to as the Old Testament, um, and seeing it beyond kind of where we normally see it. I think it's easy to look at the Old Testament and see it as some good stories, see it as some people who are cool people, God did some neat things, and it kind of become, um, that was then, but what's really important is when we get to Jesus. Like once you get to Matthew, that's when it gets real. Um, And I think one of the most amazing things God's done in my heart and in my life over the past several years is really open my eyes to the big picture of Scripture so that we understand that when you're reading in Genesis, um, it is just as powerful, just as gospel-filled, just as gospel-central as everything else in Scripture. Um, and so it's really helped me as you get into places like Leviticus and you've got all these laws and you're like, man, I just want to skip to John, um, you know, to try to dig in. How does, this, how does this work? How does this tie in? How does this all fit together? And as we see that just unfold in front of our eyes, it's a, it's a great thing. So as we're, we're going through this, this Advent series and we talked about what do we do, one of the things that's hard is um, <clears throat> it's, it's difficult to preach the same kind of passages year after year. So when you come up to, to a Christmas series, what, what you're left with is you're left with, do we, do we use the same Christmas passages, which are good passages and which oftentimes are just kind of reserved for this time of year, or do we kind of open it up a little bit and show how there's other things that get us to there? And so what we decided to do in this series was, was do that. Look at some different places in Scripture, non-traditional Christmas texts, to help set our hearts and our minds aright to get to Jesus as we're getting in this, this time of the year. So last week we began the series and Fudd uh, preached uh, on Abraham and looked at Abraham from Genesis chapter 22 where God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, and we saw the, the foreshadowing of Christ in that story, in that, in that setting. Um, and this morning we're going to be talking about Moses. Now, Old Testament scholar by the name of John Salehammer uh, is a guy that Fudd and I both had an enormous privilege to study under. Um, this man um, could see things in the Old Testament that were... I put it to you like this. In Luke chapter 24, there were two disciples who walked along the road with Jesus after, um, after he'd been resurrected, and they weren't really sure that it was Jesus until after Jesus opened their eyes. And it says that he took the scriptures beginning with Moses and showed them how they all pointed to Jesus. Um, sitting under this man was similar to that. Like he just constantly was just showing you how Jesus was in the text everywhere. It was amazing. Um, and uh, one of the things he did was said the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, are really about they're, they're tracing this seed, this one who is coming to fix the problem of all mankind, how, how he prepares you and gets you ready to trust and look for the one who is coming. And he said kind of the, I guess kind of the subplot under that is this comparison and contrast of two men, Abraham and Moses. 
Abraham, the man of faith, who when God called him out and made promises, believed God. And it says that it was counted to him as righteousness. And that Abraham fully obeyed all God's commands, ordinances, statutes, every word that you can think of in the Hebrew for rules or commands. Abraham did that, and he fulfilled all that by simply believing and trusting God. And then you compare him with Moses. Moses, the man who went up on the mountain and received the law, had the commands of God, yet did not receive the fulfillment of the promise because he did not act in faith. So these two men geared together, put together to show us that we need to be people who believe the promises of God, who trust the promises, who look for the one who's coming and then place our faith in them. And so these, these two men that we're kind of looked at are kind of the giants of the Pentateuch, if you will. They, they give us different viewpoints, but the cool thing is, the amazing thing is as we look at them, though they're different in that regard, they both in their own unique fashion foreshadow Jesus. They both give us a, a glimpse of the one who is coming. It's an incomplete. It's just like a shadow is not a complete picture of a person. They are a shadow, and it's an incomplete picture of Christ. But they point us to, and they give us the idea that there is someone who is coming who will be true and better than what they were. And so this morning, we were going to look at Moses. We're going to take a glimpse into Moses' life, kind of his story, his picture, and hopefully understand how he foreshadows Jesus for us. And in doing so, the hope and the ultimate end goal is that we would treasure Jesus more, that we would trust Jesus even more deeply, and that we would stand in awe of him and live lives of complete obedience and worship to him. So to that end, let's pray, and then we're going to jump into the Scriptures. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the beautiful tapestry of Scripture that you have so intricately woven together in the lives of people and in bringing it together in your Word and showing us these wonderful things, this treasure mine that if we were to dig for eternity, we'd still be unearthing these beautiful things Father, I pray this morning that you would open our eyes. Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Show us Jesus that we might be moved to deeper obedience and worship of you. So God, we love you and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So if we're going to be looking at Moses this morning, there really were three questions that that came to my mind that kind of guided my... um, my, my quest into this, and there were three questions, and the three questions I had was this. What do we know about Moses? Because if we're going to figure out how he foreshadows Jesus, we need to know what we know about Moses. What do we know about Moses? How does Moses foreshadow Jesus? So in other words, if we take what we know about him. Okay, how does that give us a picture of Jesus? And then the third one is to focus in on one thing in particular, the exodus, the, the rescue of Israel from slavery in Egypt, Why is that so important? Because what we find, that one event that takes place in the beginning of the book of Exodus is brought out so many times in the Old Testament, over and over and over and over again it is referred to. The question I have is, why is that such a central portion of what we're going to be talking about this morning? So we'll start with the first question, which is this. What do we know about Moses? Well, last week, Fudd had a daunting task because he's going to preach on Abraham as a prefigure of Jesus. And he had 14 chapters to choose a text from. So starting with Genesis 12 to Genesis 26, that's a lot of information. There's a lot that goes on there. And obviously trying to get all that into one sermon is, is very difficult. 
Well, this week I kind of one-upped him a little bit. I don't have 14 chapters. I got four books, okay? Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All of those encompass the life of Moses is in there. So it's like trying to, I'm going to preach about Jesus and try to use the Gospels. You know, it's like, wh- where do you go? What do you do? It's a little bit, little bit of a daunting, difficult task. But the passage that I kept coming back to that I think helps lay a really good baseline for this is in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18. So if you have a Bible, I'd like to ask you if you would go ahead and open to Deuteronomy 18, open your app, open your Bible, pull up your iPad, whatever you do. Um, if you don't have a Bible, like if you didn't bring one or you don't own one, there should be one on the chair uh, in front of you if you look down there. If you don't own one, take it. That's our gift to you. Um, we'll be in Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. So if you're not sure where it is, just start at the beginning and kind of flip forward a little bit. You'll see it at the top. Deuteronomy starts with a D. Deuteronomy 18. Uh, let me give you a little background on what's going on in Deuteronomy before we read it. and We will be standing to read it together. Uh, Deuteronomy is Moses' last address to the people of Israel. The people that um, are about to go into the promised land Deuteronomy is kind of like the manuscript of his last sermon to them. This is the very last words. He's given it to them. The entire book is the recording of this. And about in the middle, Deuteronomy 18 is close to the middle. He says what we're going to be reading, um, which, is, which is pretty powerful. So if, if you would, please stand with us as we read. Uh, we do this because we believe this is the word of the Lord. And this is not merely human writing. This is God speaking to us. So in an act of honor, we stand um, as we read this. You read along as I read out loud. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. This is what it says. Moses is speaking. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they've spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to the words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. You may be seated. In this passage, we see something pretty interesting. Moses says that God is going to raise up a prophet who is like him. This is where we're starting. This is our baseline. This is where I got the question. What do we know about Moses? Because Moses says there's a prophet who is coming who will be like me. And what we find is that when you get to Deuteronomy chapter 34, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it for you. Deuteronomy 34 is the last part of the book. Now, we don't believe Moses wrote this very last part because it's talking about what happens after he dies, okay? So he wasn't alive to write this. This is the, this is the inspired person. He's putting it all together. He's bringing us. He's writing the end of this. And this is what he says, Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12. And there has not arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses. Whom the Lord knew face to face, no one like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent to him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. Now we know that it was God working all the signs and wonders, that it was God who did all of this, but the writer says there has not arisen a prophet like Moses. Now this is not unintentional, this is not by accident, the writer 
writer here is putting in, he knows this passage, he knows that God has said there's going to be a prophet like Moses, and he lets us know there is no other prophet who has arisen like Moses. There have been prophets, they have done things, but Samuel is not like Moses. Elijah is not like Moses. Elisha is not like Moses. Isaiah is not like Moses. Jeremiah is not like Moses. Haggai is not like Moses. And we know that at the time that Jesus came onto the scene in the Gospels, that the people were still looking for this prophet. He had not come. The one who was like Moses hadn't come onto the scene yet because they're still looking for him. We know this because in John chapter 6, and I would argue that John so puts his gospel together to help us to see that Jesus is this prophet. I wish I had a time to do a whole sermon on that, about John going through his gospel and showing you how John is showing you Jesus is this one. Jesus is this prophet like Moses. But after Jesus has fed the 5,000, this is the reaction of the people in John 6. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. The prophet. If you'll notice, if you read that in John 6, 14, the translators understand what they're saying. They put prophet in a capital P. This is not a prophet. They're looking for the prophet, the one who's supposed to be coming. And they said, this is indeed the prophet who's coming to the world. John chapter 7, Jesus is speaking profoundly in the temple. And this is what the people say. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. So what we know is that these people are looking for this prophet who is like Moses. They've heard the word of the Lord. They know that he's coming and they're waiting. They're looking. And so the question is, what we want to ask this morning is how is Jesus like Moses? Or really the better question, how is Moses like Jesus? So what do we know about Moses? Well, let's kind of start from the beginning, even before Moses. In Genesis 15... God tells Abraham, your descendants, the ones who I promised you that are going to be like the sea, like the the sand on the seashore, the stars in the heaven, these people, they're going to be in a land that's not their own. And for 400 years, they're going to be servants of an evil king. And after that point in time, I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to bring them out by my arm and they will be my people. So we get to the end of Genesis and Jacob and his children, he blesses them and they go down to Egypt because Joseph is second in charge and they, God provides for them. The whole family's down there. They gives them land. It's just an amazing thing. At the end of Genesis, you're like, man, this is awesome. They've gone down to Egypt. Things are great. And then you turn over one page and you get to the beginning of the book of Exodus. And what happens? There's a new king in town. He doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't know what God has done. And the people of Israel make lots and lots of babies. And lots of babies. And they get big. And there's more of them. They're everywhere. There's so many of them. And now this king, instead of seeing, wow, these are good people who helped us, they said, this is a threat. They're going to take over. They're going to raise arms. Something's going to happen. We've got to keep these Hebrew people down. And so they enslave them. And so now for 400 years, they're living in Egypt in slavery. And at one point in time, this king says, all right, there's still, there's still too much. So what we need to do is we need to go through, and I'm going to get these Hebrew midwives, and they're going to go and kill all the baby boys that are born. They're just going to slaughter them. And Moses 
His mom, she's pregnant with him. She has a baby. She's like, oh my goodness, I don't want this to happen. She makes a basket full of reeds, fills it with tar, and puts it in the river. And you know what happens? Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses, brings her into his house, brings him into her house. And he raised, she raises him as if he were her own son. He's raised in Pharaoh's house. Now Moses is out amongst the Hebrew people and he sees an Egyptian mistreating him. So Moses says, that's not right. And he takes and he kills the Egyptian, hides him in the sand. Next day he comes up. He's trying to tell these two Hebrews, hey, you guys don't fight against each other. One of them looks at him and says, hey, what are you going to do? Kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Moses freaks out because he didn't think anybody saw it. And he runs. He goes, he's away for years. He's out herding sheep one day and he's on, he sees a mountain. He's far away land. He's there. He's actually back in the land of Israel. He's there. He's herding sheep. He's not really thinking about it. He sees this bush that's on fire, but it's not burning up. And like every other person I know says, I'm going to go check that out. He walks over and little does he know he's going to encounter God. And God says, hey, Moses, you're going back to Egypt. And you are going to be the one who bring my people out of slavery. And this is going to be a sign to you. When, you. when you get down there and you get them and you bring them out, you guys are going to worship right here. Moses starts making tons of excuses. I, 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 can't, I, can't, I can't talk. I, I, I stutter. I am no good. God says, who made your mouth? And he's like, okay, you did. So that's not a good one. Um, so God, Moses just keeps making excuses. God says, I'm going to send Aaron. And finally God says, get out of here and go. Moses goes down. And if you've seen the Prince of Egypt or been to Bible school, or most of you know the story. What happens? Moses goes down and God displays his wonders and brings these plagues on Pharaoh, displays the power of his might for all of Egypt and for all of Israel to see. And at the very end, finally, Pharaoh says, just leave, just go. God makes the Egyptians favorable to the Israelites. They give them all this stuff. They're walking, they're out, they're praising, everything's awesome. They come up to the Red Sea and they turn around and Pharaoh's army is coming. There's a Red Sea in front of them. They don't know what's going to happen. God says, extend your staff, Moses. And when he does, the Red Sea splits and all of Israel wipes, walks across and to complete their rescue, God crashes down on the far army of Pharaoh all that water, Israel is now completely free. And we look at that and we think, Moses, good job, dude. Way to step up there. So he's leading all these people. You think everything's going to be great. Give it a couple days and you know what happens? I don't have anything to eat. So all the people start looking at Moses. What have you done to us? Why did you take us from a place we actually had food? Now we're hungry. So Moses prays and God sends down manna. They call it, what is it? That's what manna means. What is it? What is this stuff? But they eat it. And it's good and it sustains them. And so then they're satisfied and they stop complaining. But given a little while later, you know what happens? They get thirsty. So Moses strikes the rock. When he strikes the rock, water comes rushing out. And they stop complaining. They're not thirsty anymore. So Moses leads the people and they get back to Horeb. And you you can imagine, it's like God has said, you're going to go out, you're going to rescue these people, you're going to bring them here, and you're going to worship me on this mountain. They have seen God do amazing things. You would think they would just be overwhelmed. They never complained about anything. They would just say, hey, God, we're hungry. Could you give us something? Because they've seen what God can do. They go around. God tells Moses, get them ready because we're going to have this thing right now. God says, you guys go get ready. Moses says, get three days. 
Consecrate yourselves. Don't go up on the mountain. In three days, God's going to come down, and we are going to meet up with him, and it is going to be a worship experience like you've never had before. Three days, they're ready. At that morning, the, the God comes down on top of the mountain. There's fire. There's lightning. There's storms. It is crazy. And the people look at that, and they say, we're not going up to that mountain. We're not doing that. Moses, you go up for us. You go meet with God. You're the one who's hung out with him before. You go up there, hear what he has to say, and then come down and tell us, and we'll go from there. So Moses goes up on the mountain. He meets with God. God gives him the law. You've seen Charlton Heston with the two Ten Commandment tablets. I was this close to doing a dramatic monologue this morning, and I just didn't do it. And then I almost walked out. There's a whole bunch of stage props back there, and there's a Scrooge tombstone that looks like a rock. So I almost did it again, but I didn't do it. So, But Moses goes up. He gets the Ten Commandments. He comes down, and on his way down, he's going down, okay? The people have seen God do all of this. They've seen God provide all of this. They've seen God on top of the mountain up there. And while Moses is up meeting with God, because he takes a little bit too long, they make up their own gods and start sacrificing to him and worshiping them. And so God says, as Moses is going down, you go down there because I'm about to wipe them out and I'm going to make you a great people. And what Moses does is says, oh, wait a minute, God, don't do that. For the glory of your name, what will the nations say? That you weren't able to deliver your people? No, God, for the glory of your name, don't wipe them out. Keep your promises. Forgive them, please. And he intercedes for the people and God relents and he doesn't wipe the people out. So they come down and they have to wander for 40 years. Moses is leading them all during this time. And what we find is this whole grumbling and complaining thing just happens over and over and over and over. And every time they do it, they just get more laws. And they're sitting there and they're like, ah, oh, okay, we're good, we're good. And then we start doing something stupid. And God says, just, your sin is just bringing all these laws. Come on, you've got to get, get it right. And at one point in time, like the one that's like, that kind of, you know, sometimes you get those stories and you're like, man, that's kind of random. It's just kind of weird, but still kind of cool. Um, because they're sitting and they're grumbling about food again, okay? They had to be Baptists because they're grumbling about food. And so they're sitting there, and uh, I'm Baptist, I can say that. Um, so they're, they're sitting there, and they're, they're, they're fussing about food. And God sends fiery serpents. It says fiery serpents. I don't know if they were like literally on fire or if when they bit you it was so bad it felt like fire or whatever. But he sends these serpents amongst them, and, and they're dying because they're so grumbled against God, and it's his punishment. And so Moses, again, he intercedes. He goes to God, and he prays, and God says, all right, here's what you do. You make a bronze serpent, one that looks like that, and you put it on a pole, and you raise it up right in the middle of the camp. And everybody who looks at the serpent will live. And so Moses makes a bronze serpent. He puts it on a pole, puts it in the middle of the camp. Everybody who looks on it lives, and the narrative moves on. You're like, what in the world? So you're not trying to figure out what's going on. Well, then, right after that, not long after that, again, they're thirsty. Like, this is a recurring theme. As if they, they don't know that God's going to provide for them. They're thirsty. And Moses is just angry, which I get. I get this. Moses, I'm feeling you. They just need to shut up and, and walk, you know. God's going to provide. But he's angry. And so God tells Moses, Moses, speak to the rock. I will provide water again. And Moses says, do I have to do this again for you, you rebels? And he takes his rock and he hits the rock twice with his staff. And water bursts forward. And God says, Moses, because you did not believe me, because you didn't exercise faith enough to hold me holy in front of all these people, you're not going to go into the promised land. 
So Moses has gone down. He's, he's led them out. He's, you can imagine Moses. He's been there. He's like been the vehicle for all these plagues, for parting, parting the Red Sea. He's brought water from a rock, manna from heaven. He's gone up. He's seen God face to face. He had to put this veil over his face because he's shining the glory of God. All of these things are happening, and now he can't get into the promised land. And so that's when you come to Deuteronomy. He's given them the last word before he sends them in. That's Moses. 30,000 foot view of Moses' life. So that's what we know about Moses. But here's the question then. If that's what we know about Moses, our second question is, how does Moses foreshadow Jesus? How is it that those stories right there help us to understand things about Jesus? Let's think about it. Jesus, like Moses, had an evil king who didn't want somebody to take over his throne. And so he tried to take care of it by killing all the babies. And Jesus, like Moses, was miraculously saved from that. And so that's a similarity, but you know what? Moses brought down bread from heaven. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He came down himself and gives us what we need to sustain us. Moses struck the rock and water came forth. Jesus said, I am the living water. Anybody who drinks of me will thirst no more. That's actually what happened in John chapter 7 when the people said, surely this is the prophet. They understood what was going on. Moses led the people out to the mountain. And when all the people were ready to go up and God came down, they said, go up to the mountain for us. So Moses went to the mountain for them. Jesus went up the mountain for us. Not on a mountain when we were afraid to God, a mountain that had a cross on it. And when God's wrath came against us, Jesus stood in the place on our behalf. And didn't just ask God not to do something. Ask God to pour the wrath on him instead. And every single time that we turn against God, and every single time that we grumble and complain, Jesus stands in the way and bears the wrath of God and reminds the Lord that he has paid the price completely and reminds us that all of our sin is taken care of. But there's one thing that's a little bit different. You see, Moses didn't get to lead the people in. Jesus will. You see, when the people were grumbling and complaining, and there were snakes that were sent against them, and they had to make that snake, and it's a crazy story, like, why are they looking at a snake? We remember 2 Corinthians 5.21, where it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, what Jesus did was Jesus took on the very thing that was killing us. And when we look to him, he provides the salvation and the way out. Jesus, what did Jesus say? Just like Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. You see, what we find is that the people didn't just need physical rescue. Because what happens? As soon as they are rescued physically, 
they are still grumbling, complaining, disobedient, not following God. You would think, logic would tell us, their situation has gone from bad to good. They have been removed from slavery. They are now free. They were hungry. They now have food. Their things are great. Things should be wonderful. God has rescued them. Now they should be the right kind of people. Now they should be the lawful kind of people. Now they should be the most obedient people in the world. And what we find is that Moses came down and rescued them out of physical slavery, but they were still in need of a savior from their spiritual slavery to sin. And let me tell you, when we say spiritual slavery, it's not like we're trying to make it cute. It's not like we're trying to make it nice. Physical slavery is nothing compared to slavery to sin. You are dead to the Lord. You have his wrath upon you. You are separated from him. That which you were made for, you cannot experience. So it's not some kind of nice, neat, little churchy way to look at it. Some kind of pithy statement that we can say, no, let's spiritualize this. No, that was their need. Because if they hadn't needed that, when God had rescued them physically, things would have been perfect. But things just continued to go downhill. They needed something more. They needed a Moses who could really lead them to freedom, who could really satisfy what they needed, who could really take care of everything in their life that they needed. And Jesus can do that. You see, Moses didn't get in. He wasn't faithful all the way to the end. He didn't live a complete life of obedience. He did not do everything the way that God wanted him to do. And what we find is that Jesus, before he went to the cross, what did he say? Father, if there's any way to take this from me, Lord, do it. But if not, your will be done. We find that Jesus was obedient, even obedient unto death on a cross. All the way through, Christ faithfully fulfilled all that was laid before him. And now, He stands as the true and greater Moses. You see, Moses is a picture of what we need, but it's just a picture. It doesn't get to the root. Moses saw what we needed. Jesus fulfilled what we needed. So that is how Moses foreshadows Jesus. So then the question is, why is the Exodus so important? I did a a search, I think it's something like 18 times in the Old Testament, the, this exodus, this, this freedom from slavery is, is mentioned in the Old Testament. And it's mentioned in the Psalms, in the prophets. It's all over the place. Constantly, God's referring back to when I brought you out of Egypt. So the question is, why is that so important? Why does that keep coming up? Yeah, there's times when the manna is mentioned. There's times when the crossing the Red Sea and all that's tied in there together. But why do we keep going back to the exodus? Why do we keep going back to that? And I think the reason is God is bringing up before us a memory. We remember the Exodus. And when you've studied the Exodus, you studied what happened after it. And all he's doing is he's bringing this back up. I have freed you from slavery, but I am going to free you from that which holds you in corruption and bondage forever. He's constantly reminding them, you need to be rescued. And my arm is not too short that I can't do it. I'm sending one who will bring you out of bondage, who will bring you out of slavery, who will ultimately be able to lead you into fulfillment of the promises. That's why the Exodus is so important for us. That's why we as Christians need to be able to look at the Exodus and we see it and we see what Moses was unable to do, Jesus was able to do. And in that, we have hope. 
And in that, we rejoice. And in that, we place our trust because Jesus can do it. You see, sometimes what we think is all we need is just a better place in life, better place to live, better job, better relationship. And if we had all that, then we'd be the right kind of person. Then we'd be a good Christian. Then we'd be able to live better. You know, the reason why I can't do this is just, you know, it's where I grew up or it's, it's how I was raised or it's the kind of situation that I'm in or you just don't understand. If I could just get out of that, then I would be great. I would be good. And what the Exodus and the gospel reminds us of is it's not your physical location that's holding you back. It's a sinful heart that needs to trust Jesus in all things. Yes, I don't want to make light of bad situations. Don't hear that. But it also reminds us just getting us out of a bad situation won't change our hearts. That's where we have to start. And when we see that and we love that and we trust that and our hearts are so set on Jesus, then we say, God, I'll follow you even if I got to endure this. And we fight and we live and we trust and we follow because he can deliver us. He is the true and better Moses. That's why I love Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, talking of Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. Christ always lives to make intercession for those who are his. You know, as much as I much as I make fun of and kind of want to look at the people of Israel and, and just call them idiots and try to figure out why would you guys grumble and complain? The more I do that, the more I see myself doing that in my very life. God, why is this happening? Oh, Lord, not today. Oh, why does it seem to, you know, and I just look at little things. God, I don't deserve this. Man, things would be better if, why is this? And I see myself even grumbling and complaining about the weather. Do you know who controls the weather? Do you know who the one who makes the rain on the days when our plans get messed up because they get rained out? It completely ruins our day. I mean, sometimes we grumble and complain about all kinds of things. And we don't understand that even at that point in time, Jesus is making intercession for us. Oh, the glory of the gospel. The amazing things is that no matter what I do, Christ is still there making intercession for me. That is an amazing, an amazing truth. Because he is able to save to the uttermost. So what do we do with this? Well, there's three, three points of application, if you will. First is this. Studying the gospel helps us to see these foreshadows. I uh, remember there was one time I was, I was talking with somebody about this. It's something I love. I love to talk about it. I just, it's, it's, it's God showed me these things. I just want to share it with people. And I remember talking to somebody sometime. They were like, yeah, you know, I really wish I'd gone to seminary. Then I could see all that same kind of stuff that you see. But I just, I'll just wait until you kind of tell me type deal. Um, it, yeah, and I, and, I, and I won't downplay that. I mean, I think that, you know, having a chance to study for extended periods of time is a really good thing. But you know what, what happens even more? Like this morning, one of my friends was, was talking to me, and he said, 
I just want to tell you something. You might think it's kind of silly, but I just thought it was really cool. It's like I was studying Noah in the Ark this week, and, uh, and it was like, man, you know, God calls out Noah and his family, and he brings them into the Ark, and then God closes the door, and he's covering them, and he's protecting them through all of that. And he's like, man, that's what Jesus does for us. I was like, yes, that's it. The Ark's not to meant to be to tell us that God can take care of animals. The ark's meant to tell us that God's wrath against sin will come, but God will call people out and he will save them in the midst of it. And he does that through Jesus. And it's as we study the gospel and we understand the truth of the gospel on a deeper and more profound level is as we look back, we see it and it just makes sense to us. How could we've never seen that before? It's there. It's because we have a deeper understanding of the gospel. C.S. Lewis kind of explained it this way. Um, Take, for instance, this painting over here. That, that, there's Santa Claus right there in that picture. Now that, now, that picture right there, you know, Santa Claus with a letter in his hand, I think, talking to some elves. That's just lines and colors. It's just lines and colors. That's all it is. We know that. When somebody does a, does a picture, it's just they're lines and shading and colors, and I look at that. But I look at that, and I say, that's Santa Claus. But the reason why I can look at that and say, that's Santa Claus, is because... I have seen Santa Claus. I have seen a Santa Claus. A guy with a beard, red hat, with, dressed that way with the boots and the belt buckle and the ho-ho-ho and belly full of jelly and all that kind of stuff. I've seen, I've seen a Santa Claus in real life. I've been near somebody at least dressed like him. And so when I see that, I can look at a picture and say, that's Santa Claus because I've seen the real thing. Now imagine for a minute you were somebody who had done nothing but just seen drawings. You'd never seen anything in 3D. And I tried to... I try to explain to you something in 3D. You would think, what are you talking about? It's just lines, lines and colors. But because we understand the 3D, we can look at the 2D and say, that's exactly what that is. That's how it works with the gospel. As we understand the depths and the magnitudes of the gospel of who God is and what he's done and how he's interwoven all of history together, then we turn back and when we look, it just becomes more and more alive and more and more obvious and more and more right there in front of us. And we don't have to make it up. We don't have to force it. Like there was one time I heard a guy was like, you know, the Ark of the Covenant was made out of this really kind of wood and that wood's really super tough. So what that tells us is Jesus is strong. I was like, dude, that ain't in the text. You're making that junk up. That's not, we don't have to do that. It's there. We see it because the gospel, we know the truth of the gospel and it opens our eyes to what God has already done all the way right there throughout history. So as we see this and as we see these types, let us move ourselves to trust the gospel. We talk about the gospel a lot here. If you go here, the danger is you're going to be like, yeah, the gospel, I got that. Yeah, I know, I need to be gospel-centered, blah, 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 gospel, 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 I hear you. Don't ever let that happen. Don't ever let it be that you would say the gospel is what gets people into heaven or the gospel is just the thing they talk about. Yeah, I just need to use that word. I need to be gospel-centered. Never stop immersing yourself in the truth that though you were far from God and had done nothing for him, God from all of eternity had planned that he would send Jesus to die on a cross and pay the price that we could not pay, take our sin upon him, and that all who would look upon him and trust in that would be saved, not only now but forever, and we would spend eternity with him, satisfied in ways we can never understand, fulfilled in ways that we were made to be fulfilled. Never, ever, ever, ever let that become old news. 
It is the good news. It always will be the good news. And for all of eternity, we will sing the praises of the riches of God's grace upon us. Let the gospel massage deep into your soul and then see the beauty of Scripture through the lens of the gospel. Secondly is this. Jesus is the one who is coming. All throughout Scripture, they're looking. they got this thread of the one who is coming. In the Old Testament, they're looking for the one, the one who's going to crush the head of Satan, the one who's going to be a descendant of Abraham, the one who's going to come from the tribe of Judah, the one who's going to be a descendant of David, the one who's going to reign on David's throne forever, the one who's going to do all this stuff. We're given all these clues, and the people in Jesus' day, they're still looking, they're still looking, and Jesus comes on the scene, and he fulfills everything, and they're rejoicing because Jesus has come, and then Jesus dies, and he goes back into heaven, and now we want to look at that and say Jesus was the one who was, who was to come the hope of the writers of the New Testament wasn't just that Jesus came but that Jesus is coming again it's so what Titus writes the, the, the glorious hope of the, the, the hope of the appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ the hope of the gospel writers wasn't just that Jesus came but that Jesus was coming back And so as we spend this time of Advent and we're looking back on Jesus coming and we're looking back on how it was God's plan for all of time, let that then take our hearts and set it and cry, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Lord Jesus, come eradicate death once and for all. Come eradicate sin. Come get rid of cancer. Come get rid of struggle. Come get rid of hurt. Come get rid of pain and disappointment. Come back. Come back, Lord Jesus, just as you came. Please come now. And so Advent is not just a time to look back, but it's a time to look forward and long for the coming of Jesus. And just as they were looking for the Messiah to come, let us be a people who are looking for the Messiah to come. Because he has saved us from our sins. And we're longing for that salvation to be made complete. We have been saved. We are being saved. And one day we will be with him and we will have that completed. And we long for that day. Let Christmas be that kind of year for you. Third thing is this. Faith is the vehicle for obedience. John 14, 15. Jesus says this. If you love me, you will keep my commands. It's kind of similar to Deuteronomy 18 verses 18 through 19, where God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from amongst their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Which, by the way, I don't know if anybody else finds it kind of interesting when Jesus in the book of John says, I don't speak anything on my accord, but what I hear from the Father, I speak to you. I think Deuteronomy 18 right here helps us understand that. Jesus is showing them, I am the prophet. And all that the Father gives to me, I'll give to you. I speak not in my own name because I am fulfilling this prophecy right here. But when Jesus says something, when Jesus gives us a command, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Remember, Moses at the end of his life was not faithful to the end. God said something, he chose to do it his own way because he didn't trust in God completely. He wasn't faithful. Jesus says, if you love me, the result will be you will keep my commands. But that's also, if you love me, keep my commands. 
Jesus, I love you. Right now my flesh is pulling me another way, but I love you, so I want to keep your commands. The gospel calls us to say, Jesus, you have done this for me. You are the true and better Moses. You have rescued me from my sin. You are my savior. You are my everything. I believe to the uttermost that you have done this, that you did what Moses could not do. You came for me. And now the evidence of that is that I want to live an obedient life. We're not earning anything. We're not trying to get things better. We're not trying to get God to love us more. It is the natural outflow of a heart that loves Jesus to seek obedience. That's what happens. If you love him, you're going to keep his commands. And so right now, even as we look and long for him to come back, let us say, as we're waiting, as we're anticipating, as we're looking, let us strive to have faithful obedience. Knowing who Christ is, knowing what Christ has done, let that take our hearts and move us profoundly towards doing what it is he's called us to do. Maybe even this morning for the first time you understood the truth that Christ has died for you. Not just that Jesus came into this world and he died on the cross for sins, but that Jesus came into this world and he died on the cross for your sins. He became sin on your behalf, took your sin so that you might be made righteousness, that you might become the righteousness of God. Maybe the step of faith this morning is saying, I trust that. I've been trying to get myself right with God. I've been trying to do the right thing. I identify with Moses and those people because they never could get it right. I know that I can't get it right, and I know I need somebody to get it right on my behalf, and that's what Jesus has done. Or maybe this morning you're already following Christ and you know that God's pressing in on something in your life, showing you where you aren't being faithful, where you aren't trusting him in that. And maybe this morning you just need to take some time and just pray, Lord, show me how to walk in obedience. I believe it's so hard, but I want to be obedient to you because you have rescued me with a greater redemption than anybody's ever seen. I want to pray and we'll turn it over to Ben. You respond as God leads you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace of the gospel. Thank you for being the true and better Moses who can save us to the uttermost, who can lead us into the fulfillment of the greatest promises we've ever received. And as we look back on your first coming, Lord, create in our hearts a longing for your return. May we be dissatisfied with the world because we know that it's not our home that we have a a deep desire to be with you and while we're here Lord create a deeper faith within us that we might be obedient to all that you've called us to do and all you've called us to be Lord thank you and we worship you now in spirit and truth and we ask this in Christ's name Amen